This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Well, you know, Blair, never in a million years did we think that we would have to address something called pandemic financials. Uh, but here we are, and that's the topic of this segment, how to manage your debt during a pandemic and how to avoid those pitfalls. And if there's anybody around that can explain it to us, I'm pretty sure you're the guy to do it. Well, I'm going to do my best. And yes, Elaine, 2020 has definitely been an unprecedented year. Um, you know, January through February were pretty normal. But yeah, since, since March, um, you know, even all of my staff, we've been working from home. We're still seeing clients, you know, still quite busy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite a transformation in how we've, we've assisted our clients just trying to keep everybody safe these days. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the how the, the pandemic's impacting some of the people who are connecting with you and your team? Yeah, so Elaine, there's I, I sometimes summarize it. There's nobody that I'm speaking with who's better off as a result of this pandemic. You know, many, many people are feeling the pinch. And, you know, the government's done, I think, a very respectable job of putting, you know, relief programs in place. Um, you know, creditors have done a good job of coming to the table with payment deferrals. But all of those are temporary solutions, and a lot of them are coming to ends relatively quickly. So we know CERB's been extended a couple of times, but it is looking like it's going to come to an end, you know, this fall. Uh, there'll be a transition to EI, but again, none of those are going to be permanent solutions for folks who've had their income interrupted. Um, and, you know, it's also the case that before the pandemic hit, BC consumers were already in a pretty perilous situation. Um, you know, we saw that insolvencies had risen more than 10% year over year in calendar year 2019 compared to 2018. Uh, and that's a huge increase because the year before they went up 1.8%. Mm-hmm. So it was really accelerating the number of folks who were already, already having trouble with debt. Um, and since the pandemic hit, you know, insolvency filings, bankruptcies and proposals, they've declined pretty significantly. Um, but I think any trustee that you speak to, and certainly myself and our firm here, we think it's just a temporary situation where people aren't better off, um, but they're taking advantage of payment deferrals. They're focusing on what's right in front of them, their necessities of paying the rent, uh, paying the mortgage, you know, sometimes paying down some of the debt. Um, but I think we're anticipating that a lot more folks are going to need our help um, over the next coming months here. And what about a payment deferral? How does that work for folks if that seems to be something that they're using? Yeah, so a payment deferral is where you work out with your creditors and you've, you've got to do this formally. You can't just stop paying and then expect they're going to say, oh, yeah, we'll defer those payments. Um, but a lot of creditors, you know, credit card companies, even mortgage companies, um, you know, they've offered a six-month moratorium on payments. Now, okay. that sounds great, but in general, what happens is they just continue to charge you interest and that gets added to the balance. So, you know, if it's your mortgage, you're going to be paying more in the end because of that extra interest that you didn't pay for the six months. If it's your credit card, Well, we know credit card interest rates, um, you know, you've just delayed making some payments, but they're still, you know, tacking those interest payments on. 
what's also interesting as well, and I think that's given people some comfort, um, is the creditor enforcement of debt has been at a standstill since about March. Um, so I wasn't hearing from clients. They were getting a ton of collection calls. Uh, the courts were shut down in every province across Canada. Uh, but that's really flipped, almost like a switch in the last couple of weeks. We're getting a ton of calls from people that collectors are hounding them. The collectors are all working from home now as well, it seems. Um, and with courts being reopened, I've had numerous clients who've been served with legal documents saying they're being pursued for payments and being pursued for a debt through a court system. You know, first off, it's pretty intimidating because most of us, you know, don't know all the ins and outs of what's a criminal offense versus civil. Um, you know, first off, you never go to jail for owing money unless there's just some fraud involved. Um, but, you know, it can be pretty scary to be, to be served some legal papers. And that's been happening more and more just in these last couple of weeks. So the idea of the standstill on enforcements, that's really come to a close very recently here. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about the pitfalls that you that you want to talk about that are important ones that maybe people are thinking about, but boy, oh boy, at the end of the day, they're not the best the best option for you. What's your number one? Yeah, so I love doing these types of segments, Elaine, because to me it's navigating the minefield, and these are things that you don't want to step on because they're going to have you know much greater negative consequences than positive consequences. And I think the number one um, idea is the idea of getting a cosigner if you're going to try to consolidate your debt. So I, I speak to people quite often, and they say, you know, I tried to consolidate, get a consolidation loan at the bank, and they wouldn't approve me, but they said, you know, if I brought in husband or wife or mother or father, brother, sister, um, you know, then they would agree if that person agreed to sign on the dotted line. Um, you know, I've, I've said many times, people ask, you know, when is it wise to get a co-signer for a debt consolidation loan? And the answer is almost never. There's almost never a situation uh, where that's going to be a good idea, um, because, you know, first off, the bank might have known something when they're not willing to, to approve you for the consolidation loan. They might have said, you know, you're going to have a bit of trouble paying this back or you're not going to have the assets to support it. Um, so in some cases, you might want to listen to them and say, well, yeah, is that really going to be solving my problem? Is this a payment that I'm going to be able to make? Um, but the other thing is I find people really misunderstand, this is from the borrower and the co-signer point of view, a lot of people co-sign a debt thinking that they're never going to be called to pay the balance. And if they are called to pay the balance, at most, it's a 50-50 loan liability, uh, and that's completely false. So if you co-sign a debt, it's what's called joint and several liability, uh, which means you're responsible for the entire amount. So it doesn't matter if the person doesn't make any payments, the original borrower, the co-signer can be held accountable for 100% of the debt. And I think one final point here is that it really removes some flexibility um, in that in the event that, you know, you get the consolidation loan and you find out you can't pay off that consolidation loan and you need to see a trustee perhaps to do a consumer proposal, which is going to cut the debt and give you something you can afford, uh, or to file a personal bankruptcy to get you back to owing nobody anything very quickly, what happens is I can protect the individual who's doing the proposal or the bankruptcy, but I can't do anything to protect the cosigner. That person's agreed to be responsible for the debt, so it can really constrain an individual if they know a consumer proposal is in their best interest, but they know it's really going to hurt a family member or a friend who stepped up to cosign for them, they can just feel completely completely you know, trapped in with their options, uh, not wanting to hurt someone who's put their name on the dotted line for them. Got it. And does that include, or can we lump credit, uh, you know, joint credit card accounts or vehicle financing, the same, the same situation plays out there? 
Well, yeah, you want to be careful on both of those, Elaine. So when it's a joint credit card account, you want to look at the cardholder agreement uh, and even look at the statements. If the statements are coming with two persons' names on them, um, then that's basically a joint debt, meaning that if one person doesn't pay the balance, the other person's fully responsible. Um, So even just getting a supplementary card, it can vary from bank to bank or card to card, uh, but there's definitely the potential that just by getting a supplementary card, you could be making yourself responsible for the balance that's outstanding. So most of the time, I recommend that people keep their accounts separate. Um, You know, it's usually just a minor convenience of having a supplementary card. Usually it's just a better idea for the bank. They've got, you know, a couple of customers wrapped up. Um, So I tend to recommend against it. Uh, With vehicle financing as well, um, similar to a consolidation loan, if something goes bad, if that vehicle, um, you know, is repossessed or written off or something and there's a balance that's owing, um, that co-signer, again, could be held accountable for that. So um, in general, people should face their debt problems under their own steam is is my firm belief. Um, And that's why I've got so much pride in the solutions that we're able to offer. You know, they're Canadian legislated, uh, but they're not based on anybody having to get a co-signer or qualify. You know, everybody's got the right to get relief and, you know, at least investigate those before you try to to get a co-signer involved. See, and this is one of the reasons uh, why talking with a trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, especially at Sands and Associates, um, they've got all this knowledge and base of knowledge and information and it's fact and it's legal and it's all of those things that you really need when you get into a situation where you're having to deal with your debts. That's why, uh, that's why we do this show and that's why we do these segments. Uh, talking to a real licensed insolvency trustee is really the only way to go. And that includes getting information like this one or number two paying debt with uh your rrsp funds yeah this is probably the number one thing i see that really breaks my heart um, because you don't have to do that but oftentimes people are counseled into cashing in their rrsps you know maybe it's a friend or family member or even a collection agent or someone at the bank that says you know you probably should pay your debts with your rrsps because if you had to go bankrupt you're going to lose those anyway and well gee 10 or 11 years ago you might have lost them but they've been protected assets for more than a decade now in canada so it's never a good idea to cash in your rrsps for anything other than to fund your retirement. You worked hard to save that money. So if you're contemplating um, cashing in RRSPs to pay debt, it's absolutely a pitfall. Um, you know, oftentimes people don't consider the withholding tax that's going to be um, you know, held back, and maybe that's not even going to be enough, and they might owe some taxes the next year following. So it can be a really depressing, uh, demoralizing situation where you've cashed in your retirement, you still haven't solved the debt problem, then you owe some taxes as well. So definitely it's one of those things. Think twice, think three times, get a lot of advice before you contemplate play cashing in your RRSPs. And I think uh, along with that is your is your third one third pitfall to watch for and that's getting advice from the wrong source. Yeah, it's really difficult when when you owe money because you can feel completely alone. And, you know, as much as I can say, I speak to people every day of the week, you know, sometimes six, eight consultations a day, um, and I'm giving people, you know, information they wouldn't get from anywhere else. But a lot of the times people reach out to whether it's friends or family members who are well-meaning but just might not have up-to-date information. Um, You know, even some accountants and lawyers, they don't specialize in insolvency, and the law can change quite a bit. So your best bet is always to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee 
safety. And, you know, sometimes people think, well, do I need a referral? Do I have to pay a fee? And absolutely no. There's no referral required. Uh, you know, I often say the hardest thing is just picking up the phone to call us. Um, you know, just give us a call. We often can do a same-day or a next-day meeting. We're doing everything uh, over Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams or over the phone these days to keep everybody safe. Um, but there's nobody I speak with who doesn't breathe a sigh of relief, get some information filled in, and get some real black-and-white information instead of the murkiness or gray area that a lot of things can feel like when you're dealing with a debt that you can't pay. And I think it's important too, you know, licensed insolvency trustees, you guys are so regulated uh, by the federal government as to as to what somebody can do to get themselves out of debt. Uh, it's just just a really good reminder for folks. Absolutely, Elaine. We're the only people that are allowed to file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So lawyers can't help you make that filing. Only a trustee can do so. And a trustee's not going to ask you for a retainer or a fee for service. Everything's going to be set by the government tariff. Um, so again, it's probably a much better outcome for people to speak to a trustee first before they exhaust everybody else in the Rolodex and then eventually um, you know, end up a little bit despondent. And we just got just under a minute left here. Um, this is the last one, but I don't think it's the least important one of, of all of the pitfalls we've talked about. And that's having your own financial recovery plan. Well, that's right, Elaine. So we hear a lot about, you know, business opening back up and getting the economy back on track. You've got to think that from your personal capacity as well and really realize that if you're looking at your statements and you're only able to make the minimum payments, you're locking yourself into a plan that's not going to have you recovered anytime soon, maybe not even in this lifetime. So even $1,000 of debt on a credit card can be 10 years of payments. $6,000 can be 40 years of payments. So really look long and hard that you can afford to pay down your debts and try to get things back on track, you know, in a calendar of two to three years. If you can't, then you should reach out to a trustee. Yeah, and you can do that a couple of ways. First of all, their website, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this has got to be one of the biggest issues that people face uh, dealing with anything, but especially uh, finances and debt and trying to figure things out at any time in their lives. But certainly financial stress, stress around trying to make bills, trying to keep creditors away, whatever your situation is, the stress that that um, creates is enormous. And, and you guys uh, at Sands & Associates, I know, are so well trained in figuring out where the stresses are, first of all, and then giving some support for folks um, that are trying to get out of debt. So can we talk about some of the, the debt stress impacts that folks are experiencing, Blair, that, that you're talking to, especially during this time? Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. And obviously, we're in, you know, difficult times right now with the pandemic. But even absent that, you know, debt stress is not one of these problems you just put into a box and you think about, you know, a few minutes a day, a couple times a week or something like that. Uh, every client that I speak with, they describe their stress as all encompassing. It's from the moment they wake up until they're maybe able to get to a fitful sleep. Um, they just feel overwhelming stress of having obligations that they know they're not able to meet. Uh, and if we're generally honest folks, we want to pay our debts as they become due. And when you can't do that, you know, you can have all kinds of feelings of failure, uh, feelings of hopelessness, of powerlessness. You know, we survey our clients every year and we release uh, the 
the results publicly, and in our most recent studies, over 90% of participants said it was a constant or daily worry about their debts and their general finances. So literally every day of their life, um, they said they were sleeping poorly, having arguments with spouse or partner, even alienating themselves from family or friends, just not wanting to be around people that would bring them joy. They just didn't feel they deserved that when they're not honoring their obligations. So over 70% of people said their self-esteem suffered as a result of being in debt. Uh, anxiety or depression was almost 80% of our clients. And the one that just really shocked me, the, shocked me the first time I've seen it, and now it's been about three solid years, is one in five people have said they contemplated suicide as the solution to their financial problems. So if I ever needed a reminder wow. on why we, why we do what we do, uh, it's to try to reach those one in five to say, you know, there's no situation so severe uh, that should ever be a consideration. There's hope for every financial situation. And I know you've got some good ideas, some good tips for folks to, to help rein in that debt stress early on before it escalates to that really severe state that you've just talked about. Uh, absolutely, Elaine. Uh, you know, a lot of it is fear of the unknown, and the way you deal with that is you just arm yourself with information. Um, but it sometimes starts with just, you know, taking stock of the situation you find yourself in. Uh, so what is causing my stress? And if it's finances, you know, is it the case that you've stopped looking at your bills? You know, you're hiding your account balances from your partner because, you know, it's going to lead to, to some sort of an argument. You know, quite often people, well, our offices were open, they'd bring me in stacks of mail, we'd open it together because they've just been so scared uh, to open their bills for months and months, they just know it's bad news. Um, sometimes people turn to coping strategies like overeating or substance abuse, you know, even overspending or gambling, you know, just trying to win back and, and chase losses. You know, none of these are good for your overall well-being in the long term. And sometimes people will neglect their health or even punish themselves with negative self-talk or behavior, just saying, you know, how could I have been so stupid to end up in this situation? And from my experience, you know, very few people get into debt because they're completely stupid or just did bad things. It's because they were doing their best and something happened outside of their control. But that can be very difficult to see. An objective person can see it clearly. But when you're in the eye of the storm, it can really be tough to be objective about your situation. Now, I know that you didn't make a note of this in this segment to talk about, but, um, you know, during this crazy time, this pandemic time that we're all sort of trying to figure things out, can you talk about how you at Sands & Associates uh, talk to your, uh, your clients or people who are wanting information, who aren't able to come in and bring their stack of mail with them? Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. So as of now, since about March, you know, we've all been working from home to try to keep everybody safe. Uh, so we've been doing all of our meetings by Zoom, um, by Microsoft Teams, by Skype, or by telephone. And, you know, at first I was like, are we going to lose the, the personal touch, the client interaction? I found it's actually better. Um, you know, a lot of people are getting very comfortable, you know, even on your phone, you barely need to download anything to do a Zoom call. Uh, and then it can be immediate. You don't have to travel to our office. You don't have to say, oh, I left this at home. I'll bring it next time. Um, so I find, you know, we're able to book people now, same-day meetings. We're able to help people all over the province. Um, so we've been able to expand the, the help we've been able to give to individuals just by offering things remotely right now. Uh, and the need hasn't went down. It, it's increased. A lot of folks are really feeling the pinch right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, your next, your next point was about putting things down in writing as a really good way to deal with the stress. 
Yeah, so again, the idea of taking control of the situation is first you need to know, well, what's, what's the, the rules of the game? Where do I sit right now? Um, so I encourage people to sit down, list all of the debts with account balances, account numbers, and the payment requirements, just on a single sheet of paper, nothing too technical, uh, and then take a look at the household budget. You know, does that budget balance? Is there enough money there for me to be honoring these payments? Uh, if there isn't, well, then that, that's a good indication um, that you're not going to be able to get out of the, this situation under your own steam. Um, even starting to keep track of your income and your actual spending. So a lot of folks that I speak with, um, you know, they're using a credit card that gives them reward points, they charge everything on it, they try to pay it off at the end of the month, but they've got no idea what they actually spend across various categories. So just tracking things for a month can be just a revelation um, into, you know, hey, 30% of my income is going to my debt payments and I'm not even spending enough on groceries, you know, for a family of two, let alone the family of five that we are. Um, so it can be really important just to track your spending and see where the money goes. You know, it's a case no one is born knowing how to manage their money. No one's born with, with great financial literacy skills. It's a skill anybody can learn, and I believe it's way simpler than most people assume. Uh, and it's something at Sands and Associates, we spend a lot of time trying to coach our clients, counsel our clients so that they can be self-sufficient even after they finish dealing with us. Are there other financial items that, that people uh, forget about and then think, oh, gee, no, I need to include that, or what do I do about this what, that has sort of a financial connection to it? Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. So there's a couple things that we say you should go one step at a time, and these are, are kind of in priority um, sequence here. The number one is to make sure you're up to date with your taxes. So, you know, it's not the case that the government doesn't know you owe money until you file. They know everything is centralized with CRA. They've got your T4s. Even if you're self-employed, they've probably been able to look at your banking information without your knowledge. Uh, but it's really your obligation as a Canadian to file your taxes. And what that does is it gives you access to government benefits you might not have even been aware of. So quarterly GST checks, Canada Child Benefit. Sometimes when I'm dealing with clients and we help them get caught up with their taxes, they actually get a lump sum of a few thousand dollars coming back to them. That helps them solve a lot of the debt problem. And they say, well, why was I so scared to do this? And I say, well, I'm not sure, but happy we could help. Uh, but sometimes people really have a block with doing their taxes every year. And it's the case. It's just something you've got to do. It gets easier the more that you practice. And the government's done a great job of putting information online. If you're missing slips, you can get online access to CRA and do that. Uh, you know, another thing sometimes people feel anxiety about is not having a plan for the future or for contingencies of life. So, you know, if you're up to date on your debts and your taxes, well, consider, do you have enough life insurance if you were to pass on to, you know, to sustain your dependents? Are you saving your TFSA? Do you have an RRSP? You know, those are kind of your next level of financial stability. Uh, and then finally, making sure you have a will written. So, um, you know, dying without a will or intestate, as, as that's called, uh, can just be very difficult if there are assets that you want to pass on to others. Um, so that's another financial as uh, aspect that you'd want to have sorted if, if you're at that point of really being up to date on things. Now, you've listed all the reasons why Sands and Associates and dealing with you guys makes such good sense, licensed insolvency trustee. But there's a piece that you guys offer, which I think is really well worth talking about. And you sort of mentioned it early on, when people are feeling alone and overwhelmed by it all, what kind of guidance do you, does Sands and Associates offer folks? Well, you know, we're we're a compassionate place for you to come and discuss your situation. We're going to listen first, seek to understand first, and then give you advice. So it's not that we've got, you know, two products and they either fit or they don't. It's everybody's situation is unique. Behind every person, there's a family, there's a story, there's a situation that's brought us here. And sometimes when I'm dealing with a client, I can tell I'm the first person they've really opened up to about these finances. And you can just almost see the weight lifting off their shoulders once they can be honest about where they find themselves. So it's really the case of don't go 
go it alone. When you see a trustee, it's a confidential meeting. We're not going to tell anybody. We're not even going to tell your family members unless you know you want us to speak to them as well. Um, but in general, it's a non-judgmental, empathetic um, ear for you to come to talk about your situation and to get some really good advice on how you can move forward. We've been doing it for 30 years, and what motivates me the most is when clients call me a few years later and they tell me just how much better their life has become because they've dealt with their debt situation, and it started with compassion and understanding. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment we we do every month, every week, talk about uh, sort of the interesting things that come your way from mm-hmm. your clients and and sort of well, in this case, it's a trend that's out there, yeah. um, which I find really interesting. So we're calling it credit freeze. Mm-hmm. It sounds really bad. But it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's really not available to Canadians. And not available yeah. in Canada, which is also weird. So we'll tell you all about it. It's kind of interesting. So what's it, So what is a credit freeze? Yeah, so this is something that's just recently come to prominence in the U.S., but again, something that Canadians can't do, which seems, seems really unfair in, in my view. Um, a credit freeze, it blocks a lender from checking your credit report, which is a really effective way to prevent scammers from opening an account in your name. So it's a way to stop identity theft. If you put a freeze on your credit credit rating, your credit report, you contact the bureaus and put a freeze on. Anybody that tries to get your credit information, they need your permission. So if someone has stolen your identity, well, they're, they're going to come to you for your permission and you're going to say, well, I'm not applying for this card. I didn't make that purchase. So it's a really effective extra check to prevent fraud and to pre- prevent identity theft. Yeah, it's like an, it's an, it's a gate that uh, the, the fraudsters didn't have to go through before. Yeah, yeah. And now it, they do. If your credit is frozen, a lender has to get you to unfreeze it um, just so they can access your file info. So literally nothing can happen with your credit while it's frozen. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, we had all really these, de- these data breach- breaches recently. Um, and I know that's what's really driven this change in the U.S. Um, it used to cost 3 to $10 each time to freeze and unfreeze your credit. So this has always been a function that's available in the U.S., but they wanted some money for it. Um, now it's free. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Why, why isn't it something that we have here in Canada? Like, what's the downside of it? I don't see any downside really, and I think it's just a case of that in the U.S. there's a lot more of a litigious environment, um, a lot more um, you know, consumer advocacy. Maybe in Canada we're also spread out over the geography, nobody gets together here. But I was amazed that the Equifax data breach didn't make bigger headlines in Canada because there were a lot of Canadian accounts that were compromised, and Equifax said, you know, we're reaching out to individuals, and I didn't get reached out to, and I don't think you did either, Elaine, but apparently a lot of people you know, had issues with their credit. And what I understand now is that they're offering people, you know, free credit monitoring service, which, okay, that'll tell you after something's already happened, um, but they're not offering the same type of a credit freeze product. And the take up on this has actually been been quite remarkable. 8% of consumers have frozen their credit reports in the US. 8%, that's huge. As a, as a, as a means to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, pardon my ignorance, Equifax, 
both borders we can access. We Equifax would hold my credit rating mm-hmm. as well as somebody in the United States. Yeah, Equifax operates in both countries, as okay. does TransUnion. There's a third one, Experian, which I'm not too familiar with, but in Canada, it's mainly Equifax and TransUnion that operate here. Okay, so it's not a country thing. Right. That does, yeah, all right, doesn't fit that. So... Um, what can you do here in Canada? Yeah, the the one thing that you can do, and again, this just seems like you know too little, too late, and also they want a fee for it, um, is you can put an alert on your credit file. Okay. So it's an alert, and it costs you five dollars, and the alert will ask lenders to please contact you to verify your identity before extending credit. But you said please. I said please because it's not a requirement. It's not a requirement, mm-hmm. even if you put that um, alert on it. Yeah, they don't have to. There's nothing binding about it. Um, you know, there's there's nothing required. And it's almost like writing on your credit card, which I've seen people do on the signature line, you know, CID, request my ID. Well, maybe the person will or not, but uh, it's really not a binding thing. The only protection you've got in Canada is literally to just keep checking your credit report, just to keep a close look on it. Um, you can do it for free once a year. Um, they want to sell you monthly credit monitoring services, you know, 20 to $25 from the bureaus, but you generally don't need that. Um, there are are some free options online like Credit Karma or Mogo where they'll try to sell you a bunch of loans, but if you don't take the loans, you can still monitor your credit online. Okay. Um, so you talked about the credit bureaus offering that credit monitoring service, but that still seems crazy that mm-hmm. I have to pay pay <laughs> yeah. for data that's about me. Yeah. Right? That's where the that's where it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you have to pay the company that should be protecting your data to let you know if they fall down on the job and your data is not protected. Yeah, it's like cart, horse, barn, door, Mm -hmm. open, all of those things, right? Um, So what what can we do? Like, what can we do as a consumer or... Or is there anything we can do? You know, I'd advise against paying the the $5 to put the notification on there. To me, it's just money that the creditors might ignore anyway. Um, You know, I I think the better thing is just, again, just to be on the ball, just to know you're going to check your credit at least once a year, which again, you can get the long form credit report printed, sent to you once a year. If you go to my website, sans-trustee.com, if you click on client resources, we've got the form that you send in. It's not easy to find in other places. Um, I would put periodically check in, you know, on a Mogo or Credit Karma or something. But, you know, really, if your identity has been stolen, it's going to be a big deal no matter what, and you're going to have something to deal with. So a lot of it is just hoping that it doesn't happen to you. Now, is there a lobby that would be on our side on this to make, to have those changes made? Are you aware of anything? Nothing that I've ever seen. Yeah, okay. no, no consumer advocacy, advocacy group that I've seen. I thought they would have really rose up if something existed about the Equifax data breach. But again, it seems to have come and gone and people have moved on. So if you're so fo- so if you're so inclined, uh, letter to the minister, federal mm-hmm. minister, or I guess it would be it'd have to be the federal minister for national for a national issue. Yeah, and I think that that's part of the challenge here because a lot of things are regulated provincially versus federally. So I know you know the Consumer Protection Act of BC that re- regulates you know debt collectors and different things like that. In terms of credit bureaus, yeah, I would start with your local um, MLA and see if this a provincial uh, regulation. But I believe it's something federally would have to change, which is a long road to get changed. It is. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, other issue we want to cover in this segment, and I think it's great, Mm -hmm. uh, especially um, being that, you know, student loans, they hang around for 
feels like forever, I know, yeah. for folks, uh, and it kind of is forever. So let's just talk about that. You, you've got a specific um, case that you want to talk about. Yeah, this one I would summarize in the, the old adage, timing is everything, really. Um, so this client first came to see me over three years ago. So it was January of 2015. Yeah. And, you know, I had a very productive meeting at that time. The main issue the person was facing was Canada student loans of more than $30,000, along with about 30000 of other consumer debt. So he was really feeling behind the eight ball. Um, he had been a student several times. You know, first loan was in 2003. Most recently was in 2011. Um, and though he'd finished the course of study, he's unable to make payments on the student loans. And he was worried they were going to start to seize wages. So this now, was about three years ago. Now, are those valid concerns for oh, the student? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, if you go silent on student loans, it's a government debt. And any of our loyal listeners would know government debts, they can shortcut everything. They don't need to sue you. They don't need to take you to court. They can just go and start to freeze wages or, or take your income each month. So you've really got to stay in touch and stay on top of government debts. Okay, but there are some other things, uh, some sort of solutions to this too, which I, I like. So yeah. the first one is the the waiting period mm-hmm. uh, that's associated with dealing with student loan debt. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so this was, you know, from the start when I sat down with this person, I could see, you know, we could file a bankruptcy or we could file a proposal right then, and that was in January of 2015, but it would have only solved half of the problem. Why only half? Well, because there's a waiting period for student loans. So from the last date that you've been a student, if you file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal and it's been less than seven years from that last date, you'll still get the protection of a bankruptcy or a proposal. No one can bother you during that time, but after the bankruptcy or the proposal where all your other debt is gone, if your student loan is not yet seven years old, it's going to survive. Which means you're still going to owe the money, the same amount of money that you started out with. Well, probably more because more. There, there's some interest sure. there. Um, you know, in some cases with, with a proposal, it might be paid down a bit. But, you know, typically in what this person was looking at was at that point probably a bankruptcy. Um, and yeah, the student loan would have been there waiting for him at the end of the day. Okay. So um, what about the hardship? Uh, you talk about the provision for hardship. How yeah. does, when does that fit in? Yeah. So that, that's interesting too, in that seven years is a really long time. Um, and the law has been changed in this a number of times. So it was the late 80s or so, there was no waiting period for student loans. And then suddenly in a big omnibus bill, they changed it and put in a 10-year period. So no consultation. They just said, hey, if you've been a student for 10 years after that point, you can't get out of your student loans through a bankruptcy or a proposal. That was changed a number of years later because that was viewed as pretty draconian. Ten years is a long time. It is. It was reduced to seven, and then there was an extra provision put in for hardship. So what this means is if it's been more than five years and less than seven, so if it's less than five years, you're kind of out of luck of dealing with these in a bankruptcy or a proposal. But if it's been more than five years since you've been a student or in less than seven years, you could file a bankruptcy or a proposal. And then at the end of the proceeding, when all your other debts are gone, you don't have to do anything else for those, you can make an extra court application where you have to show hardship. You have to okay. show that you've tried your best, you're not going to be able to pay these debts off, and it's just and right that you be discharged and you can move forward. A lot of people have to hire a lawyer, it costs a bit of money, it's not an easy process to go through, but it is another avenue to go if, you're, if you just can't wait the full seven years. Because seven years is the magic number when it comes to student loans. Literally seven years to the day. If someone files a bankruptcy before it's been seven years, so we get everybody you know, to check with student loans first, make sure the last day of study is very, very clear to all involved, and if that bankruptcy or proposal is filed after after that seven-year period, the debts are the same as every other debt. We can deal with them 100%. But if you do it before that, mm-hmm. the student loan still exists. It's still alive and well. 
So how did how did it work out for this client then? What did you end up doing? Yeah, so it, so in that case, um, you know, I essentially advised him against taking action. Um, it had only been four years since he was last a student. Yeah. Um, so I said, you know, just do your best for now, but be be aware, you know, and once this has been seven years, if you're still having trouble, um, you know, we're going to be able to help you. So I advised him to stay in touch with student loans, negotiate whatever minimum payments he could make, to work with his other creditors to try to you know get on payment plans so that he wouldn't get sued. Um, and then in April of 2018, he came back to see me. It had been seven years. Um, he had taken my advice. So, you know, he had made minimal payments where he could. His income really hadn't improved to the point where he was going to be able to clear things off. Right. Um, and we filed a consumer proposal. And I'm really proud of the, the result we were able to achieve for him here. Um, the proposal was for $18,000, so about 25% of the debt. Um, he had debts of about 73000 at that time. The student loans were at about twenty five, so he had paid them down a bit. Um, and he was he's going to make payments of $300 a month over 60 months. So over the next five-year period, he'll be making a reasonable accommodation for his student loan, be paying off what he can afford, and he didn't have to go into bankruptcy. But if he had made this proposal back in 2015, you know, he'd be finishing it in 2020, everything else would be gone, but the student loan he'd still have to reckon with. So it made a whole lot more sense for him to do his best for a couple of years and to avail himself once that seven-year period was up. So obviously he made the right choice and he did reasonably well. Did his situation improve, like his financial situation improve at all? Like was he able to make a bit more money or or was it pretty static? It was pretty static between when I had seen him and and when it was now. And, you know, I've seen that with a lot of my Vancouver clients. The costs seem to go up, but people really have a tough time increasing their wages. So, you know, he was in roughly the same situation, but the big difference was the law was now open to him after that seven-year period. Got it. So for information on this kind of a situation or anything that we've talked about in this segment that f- sounds familiar and you want more information, go to the website sands-trustee.com or better yet, give, their, them, a, give them a call. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So these, uh, we're going to talk about the difference between consumer proposals versus debt consolidation loans. And you may or may not have heard what a consumer proposal is, so I'm glad we're going to cover that. But debt consolidation loan, this is good, some good information that you think, oh, well, that's got to be the best way to go. Not always, not necessarily. Um, so we're going to talk about the benefits of choosing uh, between consolidating debts using a consumer proposal or that traditional debt consolidation loan. And I think it's a great topic, Blair. Yeah, I'm excited for it as well, because you're right, Elaine, most people are very aware of what debt consolidation is, and it sounds really great, and we know we're going to talk a little bit more in specifics, um, but most people have no idea what a consumer proposal is, you know, unless they've been through one themselves or have a friend and family member who's been through. Um, but, you know, even myself, I went to business school, worked for an accounting firm for a number of years, and it was only by chance I found out about a consumer proposal because a family member of mine, um, you know, would have benefited from one, and I wish I had known at the time to advise that person. Um, so what a consumer proposal 
capital is, is I say it's the most powerful and least well-known means of consolidating your debts without borrowing. So it's an agreement that you make with your creditors, and it's meant to be a win-win. The win to you is that you don't have to file for bankruptcy if you're facing this insurmountable debt load that you know you're not going to be able to pay off. A lot of people think bankruptcy is your only solution, um, but it's not. In a consumer proposal, the win to you is you offer a settlement to your creditors that would be better for them than if you had filed for bankruptcy. So most bankruptcies, people end up paying just enough to cover the cost of the administration, you know, maybe $200 a month over a nine-month period, and the creditors end up with no money back. In a consumer proposal, the win to the creditors is you're offering them a reasonable settlement on the debt. So sometimes it's in the range of, you know, 25 to 50% of the debt outstanding. You make that payment with no further interest, with full legal protection, everything's administered through a trustee, and you've avoided a bankruptcy. So a win-win on both sides by doing a consumer proposal. And you also get some great financial counseling throughout the process. Um, Ideally, you work a very, very positive relationship with your trustee. You get some really good coaching so that in the future, you're going to be better equipped to not be in a situation where you need to do a proposal again in the future. Um, To give some numbers that people could rely on here, uh, you know, I filed a proposal recently for a gentleman. Um, He had about $15,000 of debt. Uh, His income was pretty good. Uh, You know, he probably could have sustained these minimum payments for about, you know, the 15 or 20 year term that would have taken him to pay off the debts. Uh, But he knew that he would be paid the debts back significantly more with the interest charges. So we filed a consumer proposal. Um, He agreed to pay $200 a month over a three year period. So about $7,200 back on the $15,000 of debt. And that's all he paid. He paid no additional professional fees, nothing else. His creditors got a reasonable recovery on the debt. uh, And he walked away happy saying, I faced this head on. I decided this is what I can afford. I don't want to be in debt for 10 or 20 years. Let's get this done inside of three years. And that was a successful consumer proposal. Got it. Now, there's also a difference between how you would qualify for a consumer proposal or a, a consolidation loan, isn't there? Exactly. Now, we should spend just a minute explaining what we mean by a consolidation loan. I think most people understand, but just to make sure, uh, traditional consolidation loan is where you combine all your debts into a single settlement. Um, You basically borrow money from one bank to pay off all the other people that you owe money to. And the idea is you're going to save some money because maybe you're paying, you know, 19 or 20 percent or 29 percent interest on a few of these different debts. And in a consolidation loan, you might pay 12 percent interest. So you still pay all the debts back in full, but you generally get a bit of a break on the interest. That's why it can seem attractive to do a consolidation loan. But right off the top, it's very difficult these days to qualify for a consolidation loan because most banks are going to look for a very high credit score. So someone that's not missing payments and, you know, their debts aren't maxed out, which, you know, oftentimes your debts are maxed out. And that's why you're looking for a consolidation loan. They're going to look for very consistent, reliable income to top your self-employed individual. Oftentimes, they're going to be unwilling to approve a consolidation loan unless you can pledge an asset as collateral. So, you know, if you've got an investment account that has a bunch of money in there, uh, if you've got an asset like a car that's fully paid off, it's worth a good amount of money, they're going to want to take security on that asset. And if you don't have those things, it's going to be difficult to get approved. Uh, And finally, and this is a huge pitfall that we often touch on, but oftentimes banks will say, okay, we'll agree with this consolidation loan, but we want a co-signer. We want another another pocket to dig into in case you don't pay. Uh, And that's almost always a bad idea because you're just enlarging your debt problem to increase, to include the person who's now agreed to co-sign the debt. So consolidation loan can sound great in theory, but in practice, it can be quite difficult to actually qualify for one. How do you qualify to do a consumer proposal? 
Well, that's one of the best parts, Elaine, is the only qualification is you have to have some debt. You have to have more than $1,000 of debt, and that's a pretty low bar. You know, we don't do many proposals for less than, you know, five to 10000 usually for a lot more, but you have to have some debt that you can't pay, um, and that's about it. You have to have the desire to want to do a, a, a consumer proposal. There's no minimum credit score. There's no asset requirements. All you need to be able to show the trustee is here's my monthly budget. Here's how I can afford to sustain myself, meet all of my minimum obligations, you know, for rent and shelter, uh, for food and whatnot. Um, And then you can file a consumer proposal as long as the trustee believes you'll be able to make that payment. And a lot of the time, people have been scrimping and saving, you know, not eating well or getting behind on their rent because they're paying all their debts in full plus interest. When they do a consumer proposal, the best part is they're paying no interest and they're paying the part of the debt, the portion of the debt that they can actually afford. So quite often, the settlement's as low as 25 cents on the dollar, 30, 35 cents on the dollar. Um, and almost always, these proposals get voted yes to be accepted by creditors. Because again, when a consumer proposal is done through a trustee, it's legally supervised, legally sanctioned, and the trustee is signing off on everything, saying this is in everybody's best interest. It's a win-win situation. We recommend the creditors accept it, and we think the person will be able to perform it. So you just have to have the debt and the desire and you'd be able to file a consumer proposal. And see, and that's why dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee like Blair Manton at Sands and & Associates and, and his staff in all of their offices all over British Columbia uh, just makes so much more sense because they're legally bound to do the very best thing that they can do for you, whether it be uh, actually sitting down and going through with a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy or giving you proper counseling as to not get into either to get out of the situation you're in and not get into it again. So I just can't stress it enough. And I'm just going to throw on the phone number two right here, 1-800-661-3030. The next part of this uh, segment is talking about the debts covered. Can you can you run through that a little bit in our time that we've got left? Yeah, so that that's huge, Elena. And again, it's really simple. A consumer proposal basically covers all of your debts. It can cover um, unpaid taxes. It can cover GST. It can cover standard consumer debts. Where a bank might say, "Okay, we're going to pay off you know these debts to X, Y, Z," but you're on your own with government debts, which is usually what happens. A consumer proposal includes any debts that you have, all consumer debts. So it's a really all-encompassing financial situation. Uh, and what's great is a consumer proposal doesn't need to be accepted by all of your creditors. You know, if you had a small amount going to the government and you thought there's no way they're going to ever vote for my proposal, all you need is 50% by dollar value of the people that you owe money to to say yes. So if you owed a credit card 5000 and the government 4000 if that credit card company says yes to a proposal, the government is dragged along with the same settlement. They're legally bound and can't do anything separate. That's a huge power that doesn't exist when you do a consolidation loan. It often doesn't include all of your debts. Got it. Now, the most one of the most important pieces of all of this is talking about what it costs, what it costs to have a licensed insolvency trustee do the work or go through a consolidation loan, because there is a cost to you as a result. Yeah, when someone files a consumer proposal, they generally pay nothing up front. They just start making the monthly payment in the consumer proposal, and the costs are essentially borne by the creditors. So if someone was talking about, you know, doing a proposal, as I said uh, earlier, for the, I believe, $200 a month over 36 months, that's all that they pay. The trustee gets paid out of that amount, and the balance goes to the creditors. So there's no upfront cost to meet with a trustee, and whatever proposal payment that you work out you can afford, that includes all of the costs. It includes your two financial counseling sessions. 
It includes the trustee dealing with all the creditors, collecting the votes, getting everybody on side, and that can be just a night and day difference to filing a, uh, to getting a consolidation loan where you're paying the debts in full as opposed to just a portion. You're still paying interest as opposed to no interest, so it can be the means of you know maybe a quarter of the payment of what a consolidation loan might be, and a proposal's got to be finished within five years. That's the maximum term under the law, where a consolidation loan, they can sometimes stretch to seven, eight, even ten years if you don't pay them off on schedule. So it's quicker and it's cheaper than any of the alternatives. Such good information. And I just want to mention, too, the website, sans-trustee.com. I've gone through it a number of times uh, looking for answers on different questions that I've had. And there's just pages and pages of well-written, good questions and really thoughtful answers to those to give you information. Uh, the, uh, another way of going about it, of course, is giving them a call, 1-800-661-3030, to get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.